Somehow every time I come on this podcast, I manage to get really crappy metaphor in. Just horrifying. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Tuesday marks the first anniversary of George Floyd's murder by a Minneapolis police officer. During the past year, conversations about race and policing came to the fore in politics and the culture more broadly. And we've seen significant swings in public opinion, particularly among white Americans, initially in favor of Black Lives Matter and then against. We're gonna talk about how views and policies have evolved over the past year and try to put that in the context of centuries of racial justice movements in the United States. We're also going to take a look at why Republicans are no longer supporting a bipartisan commission to investigate the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And here with me to do that are managing editor Micah Cohen. Hey, Micah. Hello. Thank you for having me. Also here with us is politics reporter Kaylee Rogers. Hey, Kaylee. Hey, Galen. And later in the show, history professor Yuhuru Williams is going to join us again to discuss the anniversary of Floyd's death. But let's begin with the January 6th commission. So last week, a bill to set up a bipartisan commission to investigate the January 6th attack, largely modeled after the 9-11 commission, passed the House with the support of 35 Republicans. That's moderately bipartisan by today's standards, but there was originally broad support amongst Republican lawmakers for such a commission. Now, it appears that there aren't even 10 Republicans in the Senate willing to join Democrats in order to pass the commission with a filibuster-proof majority. So the question here is, what happened? I think it was just time. Time that the immediacy of the insurrection fade a little bit. And once that faded even a little, then the kind of normal partisan forces rushed in. So as long as Democrats were for a commission, I think there was always the strong likelihood that Republicans would coalesce against it. That's just the natural law of politics. And in particular, you have the highest profile figure in the party, former President Trump, was staunchly against it for obvious reasons. So as long as you had that, I think the weight in the party was going to be against the commission. And as the insurrection itself faded a little bit from the front of people's minds, there was nothing really to push back against that. It just became a partisan issue. Yeah, I feel like it really plays into this sort of broader movement we've seen from congressional Republicans where it's sort of like wanting to just move on and put everything behind them as far as the big lie, as far as January 6th. That's really been their mode going forward. And it, it serves them better to just brush it under the rug rather than to have this long drawn out, you know, many months long commission dredging up everything that went into it and casting Trump in potentially a really bad light as we learn more about how much these people really listened to him when they were deciding to get into the building. This is interesting kind of a contrast to at the state level where Republicans are very much not wanting to let go of the big lie. You've got the partisan audit, if you want to call it, going on in Arizona right now. Like This is very much something that they don't want to leave behind, whereas at the congressional level, it seems like they want to move on and just kind of stop talking about it as much as possible. Are there midterm concerns here that this commission would be publishing or releasing information or making news in 2022 ahead of the midterms? I mean, reportedly, that's one of the Republican Party's main concerns on this, is that this will keep this issue at the forefront in the run-up to the 2022 midterms. 
I think actually Republican Senator John Thune came out and just said that. They said they don't want this issue at the front of the news cycle in the run-up to the midterms. The legislation itself called for a report by the end of this year. So I'm not sure how valid that worry is from a political sense, and it's certainly not super valid based on the facts. But as Kayla was getting at, that's what this is all about. It's Republicans at the federal level aren't quite where state Republicans are in the sense of like actively pushing the big lie, at least not as forcefully, but they certainly are not where like Liz Cheney was, as we saw, where they're willing to actively push against it. And any independent bipartisan commission would have been pushing against it. So I think that's why you see Republicans trying to avoid the issue. To what extent do Americans associate the events of January 6th with the Republican Party at this point in time? They certainly identify it with Trump. And I think it's fair to say they identify Trump with the Republican Party. That explains why Republicans are concerned about this, are concerned that this story being kept alive is bad for them. Now, it's still going to be kept alive. Democrats will investigate it. Their criticism of this independent commission, that it would be partisan, is not really right on the merits. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because if Republicans don't back a bipartisan commission, Pelosi has sort of dropped hints that she'll just launch a special select committee and, and it'll be a more partisan investigation. Not to say that investigation won't, won't have merits, but like Republicans think they are better off not supporting a commission, taking whatever political hit comes with that. I don't know if there will be one because they don't want to anger the Trump base. That's the political calculus. I sort of think they're right, to be honest with you, in terms of the midterms, at least. Yeah, I feel like they're calculating that the less time we spend talking about this, the better for them. And I think that's true regardless of of who blames whom for the insurrection. The, the polling I was looking at suggests that most Republicans don't even blame Trump for it. They actually, a lot of them blame Antifa or the Democratic Party. And then even among Democrats, there's a lot of blame at Trump, but not against the Republican Party itself. So it's sort of unclear to me how they would bear the brunt of that if this went forward. I think the bigger thing is just not wanting to talk about it at all. The more time passes, the less it's part of the public consciousness and part of people's thinking, you know, heading into the midterm. So one thing that's kind of interesting, you know, I cover some fringe groups and QAnon and stuff, and they're very curious about some of the details behind January 6th because they have their own conspiracy theories about what was happening and they think it was a false flag. And so they, they kind of want a commission because they want to know more about it and they want videos released, but they also don't trust that a commission would be fair and accurate. So it's been interesting seeing their back and forth on it because they're like, well, I really do want to know the, the details, but I guess the commission isn't the right way to do it. So they're sort of torn on it in that group. I will say if you look at the polls we have about sort of where people stand, should there be a bipartisan commission, where people stand on, on the insurrection itself, independents look a lot more like Democrats in terms of their opinion than Republicans. So in that sense, I do think this is a liability for Republicans. You know, the midterms are still almost two years away, well, a year and a half or so. I think we're just at this point where the base is such a bigger concern for them than swing voters that they're prioritizing it. But swing voters, there aren't many of them, but they still exist. They still matter. We saw that in 2020. So I don't think this is like a settled issue for Republicans. I think they're trying to rewrite this to some extent. Senator Ron Johnson had these comments that 
we wouldn't even be right to call it an insurrection, that the majority of Republicans believe the protests were mostly peaceful. They believe they were led by left-wing agitators. But that view is not the majority view in the public overall. So I think Republicans are hoping to elide that gap by just brushing this aside. I'm, I'm not sure if that will work. Not even just like brushing it aside. There's like, it feels like gaslighting, honestly, saying that like this wasn't that bad. You know, you had uh, Congressman Clyde saying that it was just like a normal tourist group. And then, you know, they published some photos a couple of days later, I think in the Washington Post, showing him literally barricading the doors in Congress. And now he's saying, oh, it was no big deal. It was just like a tourist group going through, you know, with school children. So it's, they're trying to recast it as like, it really wasn't that big a deal. It doesn't require this amount of introspection. And the criminal cases are proceeding so we can all just ignore it and move on with our lives. So for the 35 Republicans who really don't view it as we've been describing and do want to pursue this commission, who are they and what calculus are they making? Do they just reside in districts where they could beat a more Trump-aligned primary opponent? Is this a vote of conscience? You know, there were only 10 Republicans who voted for impeachment after the insurrection. So who is this broader 35 lawmaker group that voted to pursue this bipartisan commission? I think that there's a, a more palatable case that can be made for supporting this commission from a Republican than the impeachment. I know that some members of the House who voted for it were saying that you know they also want to know, like, what did Nancy Pelosi know ahead of time? Could they have done more to have National Guard troops there, for example? So they can kind of spin it as their support still being a very Republican point of view. It's interesting to me looking at some of the states where there's a split in the House members who supported the commission and, and those who didn't. So like in Arkansas and Mississippi as well, there's a couple that are for it and a couple that are against it. And if you look at the districts, the ones that are in more Republican strongholds seem to be more against it. And I wonder if that concern about an even more Trumpy challenger down the line might be playing into that. So rather than putting themselves on the line in that way, they can get just kind of be against it, move on, and, and they don't have to have any kind of trial over their Trump bona fides, their Trump support. So House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy deputized Representative John Katko to sort of cut a deal with Democrats on what this bipartisan commission would look like. It's largely modeled after the 9-11 commission, but reportedly McCarthy had several demands, most of which the deal acceded to. And yet McCarthy came out against the deal. Reportedly, the House Freedom Caucus informed him that they were they were staunchly against this. And I think Katko is a good representation of the type of Republicans who are more likely to be for this. They're more likely to come from moderate districts, more likely to be a little less aligned with Trump. But I think in that difference you mentioned, Galen, between the 10 who voted to impeach and the 35 who voted for this, part of that, I think, comes from the fact that originally it looked like there might be broader Republican support for this. Democrats negotiated with Republicans to that end. And McCarthy and McConnell didn't come out against this until the last moment. So I think there's an alternate version of things here where McCarthy comes out for this, McConnell comes out for this, and, and this gets broad Republican support. I say that because the actual legislation is modeled on the 9-11 Commission. It's very similar to that. And most of the Republican criticisms of the commission are either wrong or, or misleading or just weird. 
So there is an alternate world where Republican leaders in Congress put their support behind this. And you, you would have seen not universal support among Republicans, but I think you would have seen broader support. But I think we've been taught over and over and over again that we do not live in that alternate world. But I don't know. It's like Republican leaders don't realize how much power they have over public opinion. Right after the insurrection, McConnell, other Republican leaders came out pretty strongly and condemned Trump, relatively speaking, for them. If they had kept that up, as Liz Cheney did, I do just wonder where opinion would stand now among Republicans. Maybe it would be the same. They would all be branded rhinos and people would be sticking by Trump. But research shows elite opinion can move public opinion. So I do wonder a bit where we'd be now in that alternate in that alternate world. I largely agree. I mean, I, I think that the impeachment was never really on the table the way that the commission was. And to a certain extent, those 35 Republicans in the House, they almost got thrown under the bus because everything was still kind of on the table at that point. So they supported it. And now it's very clearly like not getting Republican support. And they have to go back to their districts and defend that vote, even though those in the Senate now can just follow the party line and and stick to it. So they're kind of in a a tighter spot than their senator colleagues. Yeah, and it's important to note that this vote was whipped. So leadership proactively got people in line. And then there were still those 35 votes. You can imagine if this wasn't a whipped vote and it was more a vote of conscience, that number might have been even larger. I mean, people who you would maybe potentially see as more moderate, like Representative Nancy Mace, for example, out of South Carolina, who originally said she was even thinking of voting for impeachment and seemed to be in support of this kind of thing, ultimately said, you know, no, I'm not going to support the commission. But that seems like an obvious example of somebody who, if it wasn't whipped or, you know, in this alternate universe that Micah is talking about, would have been an obvious person to be voting for the commission who ultimately didn't end up voting that way. I do want to talk a little bit about what happens now that this bipartisan commission seems to be dead. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. As we mentioned, even though this bipartisan commission passed the House, it doesn't seem like there's 10 Republican votes on the table in the Senate. So this may be the end of the road for a bipartisan commission. But what are other ways that the people responsible for the January 6th attack are being held accountable, can be held accountable um, in maybe not even a bipartisan way? 
there's literally criminal investigations happening. So that's going to be the most direct way to hold these individuals accountable and also to reveal more about their motivations and some of the questions that we do still have. A number of the defenses being launched for people that were actually in the building are charged with with trespassing and all the various charges that they've been facing. A lot of them are defending themselves by saying, literally, Trump told us to go there. Trump encouraged us. Trump said to go take back our country. And we're really seeing just how much of a role his words and his actions played. I think that was all, you know, it seemed kind of obvious at, at the time, but now we're, we're really hearing it from the individuals who actually took part in this insurrection. And so I think we'll learn more from that. That'll be a valuable contribution, but it's different than a commission, right? I mean, a commission can be useful in introducing policy and introducing takeaways that we can use going forward to prevent something like this from happening again. And without that bipartisan group, what you're left with is, as you suggested, perhaps a more partisan approach and committees doing investigations of their own and things like that. So I do think it's a loss to not have this commission going forward and and getting more information, putting it together and coming up with some recommendations that can actually be practical and useful. So much of what played out on January 6th played out publicly. Trump's incitement of the attack, the attack itself, it was streamed by participants, it was filmed by the media. And in that sense, a commission feels sort of odd, right? Because we know what happened. We watched it happen. But I'd point to two things. One is, I'd echo everything Kaylee said, putting all that together and telling a story with recommendations is powerful when it comes from a congressional commission in in the style of a 9-11 commission. And I think one of the main reasons Republicans didn't sign on to this is because they know that. They know if if a, a balanced bipartisan commission tells a fact-driven story about what happened, it will, at the very least, implicate Trump in some way, in a large way. I'm sure they would have, or if this commission does somehow come to exist, they will argue about what that implication looks like, the language around that. Did he incite the attack? Did he encourage the attack? I'm sure there would be lots of debates about that. But there's just no way we saw everything happen. So Republicans know that that's what the end product here, at least partially, would look like. And there's still in U.S. politics a lot of power in something being bipartisan. I think even for a media that is increasingly coming to grips with the asymmetrical deterioration and small d democratic commitment between the parties, there's still power in something being bipartisan. And then the other thing I would say is there's been some reporting on the response from the White House to the insurrection once it started. But I think there are still a lot of questions there about why the Capitol wasn't better protected beforehand and why a response didn't come quicker. And that area is one where I feel like the commission could have been really valuable in getting answers because the people who have the answers to that are people in positions of power who don't have to answer media questions. And obviously this commission would have had subpoena power. I think that also speaks to the other half of this equation that we're kind of ignoring, which is, I mean, there's a political motivation for the Democrats supporting this as well. It's not just that they want to get to the bottom of anything. It it benefits them for this to be coming from a bipartisan commission that would most likely implicate Trump rather than it being a more partisan look within House committees or things like that. So they have their own political motivations. It just happens to line up well with kind of more Democratic motivations 
Whereas the Republican political motivations obviously are going to deter them from wanting to have this commission in the first place. But it, it, both sides, you know, have a good reason why they want to take the position that they have and why a bipartisan commission in particular is still so powerful. Obviously, the criminal proceedings are continuing and there is very likely to be this Democrat-led investigation, commission, et cetera, through the House. What are they likely to find? Micah, you said that so much of it happened before our eyes. What left is there? I'm really curious about some of the organizing that took place beforehand, some of the plans that were made that maybe didn't quite come to fruition. I think there's a lot of questions about just how far these people were willing to go. And I think being able to look at things that that a criminal prosecutor is going to have access to, their text messages, their group chats, things like that, that'll reveal a little bit more about the mindset and the plans going into it, that I think we can't guess just from watching what happened, even as we were watching it live. There were still a lot of questions about just how far this could have gone. You know, were we moments away from something even more violent occurring? It's hard to say. So I think that these investigations are going to be really helpful in that part. And a commission would have been really useful for taking that all and turning it into some recommendations that could potentially maybe lead to some change and and preventing something like this from happening further down the line. I mean, there's a very clear threat of domestic terrorism in this country right now. And it's a really tricky problem because domestic terrorism isn't like foreign terrorism because the actors are U.S. citizens who have all the rights and freedoms that that they should have. And so trying to monitor them or prosecute them or prevent them from doing things is a lot more complicated than it is with, with foreign actors. And so anything we can learn to build better policy, to create investigations, whatever needs to be done to try and prevent more violence from happening. I think the more we can learn about it, the better. And losing out on this commission is is one of those tools that we had at our disposal that we're just not going to be using, unfortunately. And you both mentioned that part of the attractiveness of a commission is that it makes proposals for how to prevent something like this from happening in the future. Kaylee, this is part of your beat. You recently wrote a piece on the 538 website called Why Militias Are So Hard to Stop. You know, short of this commission and its recommendations, what ways do criminal justice officials have for preventing things like this in the future? I've talked to a lot of experts who suggest that the best thing to do is focus on the actual actions of of people. So, the people involved in the insurrection or any other kinds of violent acts because they tend to follow a pattern, whereas focusing on a certain group's ideology or things like that doesn't necessarily lead to anything. You have lone wolf actors who can commit violence. So focusing on the acts and then being very clear about the laws that they're breaking, naming them, you know, kind of throwing the book at them is a useful technique. There's at least discussion to be had about Congress's role in they could establish a domestic terrorism law, which we don't currently have. They could provide more funding to states to establish ways to counter this at the state level. They could be doing something about social media, creating some kind of regulations there rather than just hauling Zuckerberg up in front of Congress every six months to ask him how his website works. I think there's a role for Congress here. It's obviously a very complex issue, but I'm not sure that there's enough discussion happening. I agree with all that. And there are a lot of important questions to ask and to discuss about what Congress can do in regulating social media, for example, and a lot of other areas, you know, in terms of like how these extremist groups, particularly on the right, are indoctrinating people, radicalizing people, spreading online, moving from platform to platform. I guess what I would say, though, is to me, this is a political problem. 
And there are ways to mitigate it, I'm sure, through law enforcement. Although I would point out that, like, a lot of, frankly, really bad has happened in the name of anti-terrorism from, from abroad or domestically, right? So there are ways to mitigate it, you know, through law enforcement. I think tech platforms can do stuff to mitigate it. But when you come down to it, you know, we had a president who lied to the American people, actively tried to undermine an election, and then basically tried to overturn a free and fair election. And we had a set of political institutions that didn't really have an answer for that. That's not totally true. We had a transition and Biden is president now. So I guess they had some answers, but certainly I think it's fair to say that it tested, tested the tested, it tested, it tested, yeah, it tested those. Well, let me put it this way. Those institutional guardrails kicked in, I think, further down the road than, than maybe we would have hoped. It felt a little bit like the car skidded off the road, tumbled down the hill 200 yards, and then hit the guardrail, rather than the guardrail kind of kicking in when you get to the shoulder, that metaphor. Somehow, every time I come on this podcast, I manage to get really crappy metaphor in. Just horrifying. <laughs> in any case, so we had a president who did these things. We had political institutions that were tested and to varying degrees worked, but maybe not quite as well we, as we would like. And we have an electorate, which is itself, let's call an institution of sorts, that is itself not providing a check on these things. Again, back to our alternate reality, it's not crazy to think there's an alternate world where Trump starts undermining democracy and his support, even within his party, evaporates. Obviously, that that did not happen. So to me, ultimately, this will require a political solution in the sense that our politics will have to change. I don't know how that happens, but that's what it feels like. All right. Well, thank you so much for that conversation. We will see how the question of this January 6th commission plays out. I'm going to let you two go, and we're going to speak with a civil rights historian about the anniversary of George Floyd's death. So thank you, Micah and Kaylee. Thank you, Galen. Thanks, guys. And before we do that... Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. As I mentioned at the top, Tuesday marks the first anniversary of the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. His death sparked historic protests across the U.S., in big cities and small towns, and among a multiracial coalition. During those first weeks of June 2020, support for Black Lives Matter spiked to its highest level on record, with a majority of Americans supporting the movement by a 28-point margin, according to civics polling. The conversation about race and racism moved well beyond policing and into just about every aspect of American culture and very much into national election debates. 
Since then, support for Black Lives Matter has waned. Civics shows a plurality of Americans do still support the movement today, but by a seven-point margin, and that fewer white Americans support BLM than at the beginning of 2020. Here with me to talk about how the protest movement following Floyd's death has evolved over the past year is Yuhuru Williams. He's a professor of history focusing on civil rights movements in the U.S. and founding director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas. He also joined us last June to talk about the protest, and he joins us again now. Thank you so much for being here today. Good to see you, Gail, and thanks for having me. So, When we spoke last June during the height of the protests following George Floyd's murder, we had a wide-ranging discussion. You noted that last year's protests seemed different in that past racial justice protests hadn't been quite so multiracial. At this point in this movement, do you think that it is still in some ways unique from those we've seen in the past in U.S. history? Unique in the sense that the immediacy around the conversation that we saw last summer continues, I think, in some arenas, not in all arenas. But what was interesting about what happened last year is, of course, that was taking place during an election year. And I think the election, the January 6th insurrection, and many things that have happened since January 6th have eroded some of the support that we saw in the immediate aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, including the guilty verdict for Derek Chauvin. This is the classic loss of political will that happens once people perceive that justice has been done. And so a guilty verdict in the Chauvin case, for some, equates with, this is over. We can move on. What are the other issues or the other things we need to be concerned about, even though we still have this massive Justice for George Floyd and Policing Act um, that has yet to be passed? You mentioned part of it is this idea that for some, maybe the issue has been addressed. What about a backlash specifically? I mean, how frequently do we see that in U.S. history? Does this follow any kind of similar pattern to what we've seen in the past? It does. We often see this type of a backlash. We saw it during the Reconstruction period. So in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, As the uh, Congress began to pass legislation and push through constitutional amendments meant to guarantee absolute equality before the law for African-Americans, there was pushback. The reason why it took seven major pieces of legislation, three constitutional amendments, just to secure a modicum of freedom for African-Americans is because of that backlash. Um, And we see that in the last great Reconstruction era law that was passed, the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which was meant to establish access to places of public accommodation for African-Americans. And ultimately, that winds up being challenged in a variety of of spaces and ultimately undermined by the United States Supreme Court and the civil rights cases of 1883, um, a precursor to ultimately the Supreme Court's decision in Plessy versus Ferguson, which made separate but equal the law of the land. So backlash has been the norm. We think about it during the 1950s and 1960s, uh, the civil rights movement. Um, You have the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That's still not enough. You need the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But the violence continues in efforts to evade the meaning of the Civil Rights Act of 1965 continue in the immediate aftermath of its passage. So this is classic in terms of what we've seen historically. And we're watching it play out in the last 12 months because there was that, as you pointed out, initial support for Black Lives Matter, which spiked in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. And then in the aftermath of the election, there is this exhale, um, this idea that 
President Trump is gone. There's a new administration coming in. And you had many people kind of articulating this idea, let's reach across the aisles. It was very reminiscent of Abraham Lincoln in the 1860s with charity toward all, with malice toward none. But the reality is that that often doesn't take into account the classic war that takes place in the aftermath of the war. And so we saw that in our contemporary moment in terms of what was playing out in Georgia, efforts to not only contest the election, but as we've moved further away from the election, efforts to restrict Black voting rights and voting rights of poor people and minorities by essentially trying to rewrite the rule book for voting in those states. So this is, again, I think a classic pattern that we see in history, something we are we should be cognizant of as we move forward. How has the movement itself evolved over the past year? I think originally it was quite focused on policing specifically, but it quickly fanned out to basically all other corners of culture. Is that itself unique? And how has that aspect of it, the evolution into much broader aspects beyond policing, shaped the public's response? I think this has been the real challenge, Galen, because ultimately what people were hyper-focused on in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd was policing. And what we saw in the months after that deadly encounter was not only Black Lives Matter, but activists in a host of arenas saying, it's not enough simply to address these issues in policing. We have to look at foundational questions of housing, access to places of public accommodation, um, healthcare. And we really have to begin the process of dismantling systemic racism and white supremacy as it informs our institutions and structures. For some people, that was destabilizing. It was uh, not part of the bargain, so to speak. So the idea was, we see what happened to George Floyd. We understand that. That's wrong. But now when you start moving into areas where you're talking about how do we deal with issues of health disparities or food deserts or any number of other issues that we associate with racialized poverty in America, some people weren't willing to push it to that extreme. Then you had some of the language that went along with that. So conversations around defund the police, people who were predictably concerned about what that meant. So what does it mean to reallocate resources away from policing? What does it mean to reimagine public safety? And what also, as we're talking about those things, does it mean to do that in the context of acknowledging the racist, white supremacist history of the United States in conjunction with that work. And I think that's part of what has motivated some of the movement away from BLM. This idea that mainstream America woke up to racism by virtue of the video associated with the killing of George Floyd. But when we began to talk about the investment necessary to really do the work of dismantling some of these systems and structures, it was a bridge too far in the comfort that people were willing to give up in order to do that work, to accomplish that work in a substantive way. I want to dig into that maybe a little bit more as pertains to public opinion. Things like defund the police are very unpopular amongst the American public. They don't have majority support amongst African-American communities or, or really like any subgroup of the American public. They largely pertain to activist groups specifically. Like, To what extent is it that the movement lost the American public versus like, there was always going to be a backlash to this kind of a racial justice movement in America? It's a great question. And I think, again, that's something that we've seen historically. So the movement or movement sometimes can move ahead of where the American people are in terms of their appetite 
for continued discourse about substantive change. We certainly saw this during the civil rights era where you had organizations like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, ultimately the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense that were well beyond the more traditional state solutions that were being offered by organizations like the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and Martin Luther King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Those were in the context of reform, and people are comfortable with that model of reform. America at the core, United States system is capable of reform. And as long as we're moving on that continuum, uh, then certainly we can do better and we will do better if we put pressure on systems and have systems respond. When you have organizations like Black Lives Matter that comes in and says, well, look, um, we're not simply talking about reform. Reform has proved inadequate. We're talking about at this point, if we date back to the Civil War, centuries of efforts at reform that have fallen short and we need to do something more extreme, you tend to lose the American people there because the question becomes, what's the outcome of this? You know, What's the end result of this and how is it going to impact me? I think part of the challenge that we're having in this moment is that as we talk about policing in particular, you can make the case that if you're talking about wanting to change police behaviors, then you're going to talk about accountability. If you're going to want to change what police actually do, then you have to talk about reallocation of resources. And those are two different conversations that get conflated in some way. One ultimately is about accountability, and one ultimately is about reimagination of the criminal justice system. And I think that's where a little bit of that disconnect happens, is that there are those who believe that reform at this point will not do the work necessary in order to improve outcomes for African Americans in situations like this. And then there are others who make the case that, look, we've tried everything else at this point. Maybe we need this type of an extreme response or extreme solution that ultimately will put us in a space where we can actually see if we can make a difference. But as you point out, Gail, and the the challenge is, this is an unpopular concept in communities of color as well. The reality is that African-Americans, and you hear this articulated by communities of color all the time, want safety and security. They want that in their community, but they also want that divorce from police brutality, which often accompanies police response to calls for assistance in communities of color. And so they're bound up together, but they're also complex, and we have to understand how they work in concert. So it's been a year since George Floyd's murder. It's been going on eight years or so that Black Lives Matter has been part of the mainstream conversation in American politics. I want to try to put all of this, and maybe the past year in particular, in some sense of history, broader history, how these things play out. So on what timeline should you judge whether or not a movement has been successful, if you wanted to ask that question of of the past year and the, the social movement that has stemmed out of George Floyd's murder? Great question. And I think there's a reason historians say that we like a window of 30 years or so before we talk about things actually being history, because we then have the space and the context to be able to judge ultimately what the short-term impact was and what the long-term implications of those reform efforts, those movement demands were. We certainly can talk about that in terms of the Civil War Reconstruction. You can look 30 years out and you can say, certainly was slavery abolished? Well, if we look at the work of Doug Blackman and others, David Oshinsky, worse than slavery, Doug Blackman, slavery by another name, the reality is that economic inequality and peonage and other forms of economic injustice continued toward communities of color. And ultimately, Plessy versus Ferguson negates even the idea that African-Americans are entitled to the same standard 
as whites when it comes to access to places of public accommodation. Nevertheless, we can still point to the success of the Civil War and Reconstruction and at least getting rid of, in name, the institution, the form of slavery as it was practiced prior to the Civil War. Uh, Civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s, again, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 are seminal pieces of legislation, which we continue to use as a benchmark for where we are in terms of our larger society and culture. But if we consider the last 10 years, go back to Shelby County versus Holder, 2013, the United States Supreme Court, the Roberts Court, abrogating key sections of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, getting rid of preclearance, for example, and a backlash in the African-American community where you have people saying, there's a reason that you put this legislation in place is because we fear the type of political chicanery that we've seen in recent months in Georgia and other states to restrict voting rights for African-Americans. So the immediate, and you'll have a lot of people say, well, when do we know if we have achieved something significant here? And the answer is we're too close. Tomorrow, the Floyd family will go to the White House. And a lot of people are asking the question, what is that meant to symbolize? Well, at this point, I would argue not much. It is very similar in my mind to President Johnson making that phone call to the families of the two missing civil rights workers in Mississippi in 1964, Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney. Symbolically, that meant everything. Symbolically, that meant that the federal government was on the side of civil rights, that it meant to see justice won in that particular case. In terms of the everyday reality of people living in the South in that moment, it didn't mean quite much. And so we still have a long way to go until we're in a space where we're able to say, did George Floyd's death really change America or change the world? It sounds good. It certainly flows from the tongue in a nice way and there's a nice alliteration to it. But in terms of its practical implications, we're still much too close to tell. Do you have some sense, given your understanding of history and this current moment of where this is headed? There are kind of two things that are happening here. There's one thing that I'm very concerned about is that now that we have a verdict in the Chauvin trial, people will exhale and walk away from this. And so the implications of this moment are that people are thinking about this in terms of justice for George Floyd and not reform of the criminal justice system and dealing with issues of systemic prejudice, discrimination, racial inequality that impact all of our systems. One of the things that was interesting about the Chauvin trial for me is the way that those conversations organically came up in the witness testimony that we all saw. So Alicia Euler, one of the first witnesses, dropped out of school in the 11th grade, is working at the service station across from 38th in Chicago and witnesses the killing of George Floyd. But her life story, in some sense, illustrates the ways in which police brutality is simply the tip of the spear. Over-policing is the tip of the spear. She drops out in the 11th grade. She's living in a community where cut food, you know, it's not quite a food desert, but when you consider the prices that people have to pay to shop at Cup, when you consider all of the other challenges that people at 38th in Chicago live with, when you consider the chronic underemployment, the reality is that, as Alicia Euler put it, things are bad here, but this is just another case of the police coming to mess with somebody. She used a different word other than mess. But the idea is that when the police show up, they're exacerbating issues that already exist in those communities, which are deeply ingrained and which remind those communities that we live in two Americas, separate and unequal. Gil Scott Heron in 1970, I think, really captured this in a poem called Whitey on the Moon. And it's a poem about, you know, it begins, a rat them bit my sister Nell with Whitey on the Moon. Her face and arms began to swell and Whitey's on the moon. And he goes on, taxes take my whole damn check. The junkies make me a nervous wreck. The price of food is going up. And if all that stuff wasn't enough, 
All right, then bit my sister now. So here's Gil Scott Heron in 1970 situating this problem as one of what happens when you live in a system where everything is unequal and then you have a health catastrophe and it reminds you the ways in which you are actually primed for outcomes that are not beneficial to you in any way. I mean, the straw that broke the camel's back in Gil Scott Heron's poem is this encounter with the health system. In many communities, the straw that breaks the camel's back is the encounter with the criminal justice system. And in some sense, that's what Alicia Euler indirectly was alluding to when she said, you know, I looked across the street and I saw the police come and it's just the police here again, you know, messing with somebody. It's the tip of the spear of a much deeper problem that touches all aspects of American society and culture. I think there's, as you're describing here, different pieces of what has happened over the past year. And one is broader structural societal challenges. And the other is the ways that this has interacted with our culture in many circumstances, elite culture, pop culture, etc. Politics and culture colliding, basically, in terms of these debates standing in, becoming the culture wars that the two parties fight over in many ways. Do you think that this movement has been more successful in changing policy and structures or changing culture or neither? I think the jury's still out with regard to how well the movement has impacted policy and structure. Certainly, if we're looking at some of the more superficial changes, then we can talk about the number of statues that have come down, changes in the way that people use language or deploy language. Those are important. Uh, We don't want to discount that in any way. At the same time, when we're talking about long-term change, I think there's some frustration on the part of many with regard to the lag in dealing with issues of policing. You've got the work of Rayshawn Ray and others who say, look, we've got to talk about dealing with the issue of qualified immunity. And yet qualified immunity in most locations is still the norm. So that doesn't really produce accountability in policing. We have to talk about, even as people were here in Minnesota celebrating the Chauvin verdict that came on the heels of the killing of Dante Wright in Brooklyn Center, shot by a police officer who accidentally mistook her service revolver for her taser and people making the case that, you know, this continues. I think the most damning thing in a way, Gail, and the most sobering thing about this conversation is what Governor Wall said here in Minnesota when he said after Dante Wright was killed and as we were waiting for that verdict in the Chauvin trial, it's not safe in Minnesota for Black people. And that's a heck of a statement for a sitting governor to make about a large group, a segment of his population in the state. And yet at the same time, I think it communicates this truth that many people feel that as we're kind of waiting for the shoe to drop with regard to policy reform, at least there's a sensitivity culturally that we're not accustomed to seeing. It's refreshing to have the governor of a state come out and acknowledge there are systemic problems within that state. It's very positive for the president of the United States to acknowledge that police brutality is an issue. It's certainly wonderful to have heads of corporations coming out and being very frank about wanting to address issues of systemic injustice, both internally and externally. And so those things matter, and we don't want to take away from them. But what do they mean on a practical level to those who are living in communities like 38th and Chicago? At least in the immediate future, not much. So are you saying this movement has been more culturally successful than politically, policy, structurally? I think we can see the cultural ramifications more clearly at this point than we can see the structural. And I think that's important. It doesn't mean that important things aren't happening. I'll give you a good example. After Baltimore 2015, 
substantive change did not come to Baltimore until this year. We finally saw, after Freddie Gray was killed in 2015, major police reform in Baltimore. It took six years. So we need that kind of window, and a year is not enough time, at least in the case of Minneapolis, to know really what the implications of George Floyd's killing will be, not only for Minneapolis, but for the nation. It really depends on what happens with the Justice for George Floyd and Policing Act. It really depends on what we see other municipalities do as a result of Baltimore making those changes um, and conversations around qualified immunity and some other issues, whether we get this national database of police misconduct, which I think is one of those key planks within that justice bill that will move the needle. So at this point, I would argue that the cultural changes have been more significant than the policy changes. You know, wounds produce narratives. And I think part of the reason that you have so many people today, activists and others, kind of looking at this issue and saying that we have to deal with the history is that they're dealing with the legacy of those wounds, which, again, don't begin on May 25th, 2020 with the murder of George Floyd. They go back. It's why so many people invoke the history of an Emmett Till or talk about Trayvon Martin and others in that larger conversation. I want to talk a little bit about how this has intersected with two-party politics How do you see the social movement that stemmed from George Floyd's death? How has it changed? I'm curious about both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, but to start, the Democratic Party. I think the Democratic Party recognized immediately that this was one of those issues that could galvanize its base, and it did, in a way that when you think about this as a party that has addressed itself to the needs of communities of color, And if we think about particularly last year, the role that Black women played, people celebrate Stacey Abrams in Georgia and the work of other activists nationally um, in terms of delivering the Black vote and delivering votes to the Democratic Party. It certainly had a profound impact on the party, and it certainly will continue to have an impact on the party as we go forward. In terms of the Republicans, it's interesting because what we've seen in some sense is the fruition of And I'll make a little bit of a distinction here, but I think it's important to note this. The Trump wing of the Republican Party won't even acknowledge that there's a problem, and that in and of itself is an issue. But with the Republican Party as a whole, this idea that ultimately the issue itself is is more about crime and less about systemic injustice, that we've gone too far, that critical race theory and the 1619 Project are ultimately polluting American youth and and giving them a perspective that's skewed is the wrong way to approach an issue which has a long history and which we certainly have documentation to support, deserve this level of attentiveness generation ago. And so it's problematic for me, you know, if we think about this in, in terms of history, although we're talking about a much different Republican Party from 1860, in a lot of ways, the Republican Party still embraces this moniker of the party of Lincoln. And so it's kind of interesting, at least from a you know, less substantive but more symbolic standpoint, to look at what's happening where the Republican Party won't even acknowledge. And we saw this during the convention last year, where they're carting out individuals to make the case that America is fundamentally sound with regard to race when everything points to the contrary in terms of our larger politics and culture. And that is what's driving the culture war as much as anything that Black Lives Matter does, although that's the talking points typically for the Republican Party, that this is all about Black Lives Matter dividing the nation. It's not about mainstream Americans. And we saw this last year, 26 million people took to the streets in protest 
you know, not just in the United States, but globally over what they saw happen here in Minneapolis. You can't discount that and say that there isn't a hunger for change and that people aren't looking for politicians, political leaders who will address in some substantive way that desire for change. I think a lot of the political debate boils down to like, how much should we talk about race and racism and how much should we talk about race and racism as regards specific policies? Even within the Democratic Party itself, I think there's a debate over whether or not Democrats should frame more anti-poverty policies as race-focused or not. Even if they are race-neutral, they may, because they address poverty, for example, disproportionately affect Americans of color. And then, of course, within the Republican Party, there's this debate over how to talk about race and racism in public education, as you mentioned, critical race theory and the 1619 Project being banned on the state level in certain Republican-controlled states. Where do you see this debate going? Like, is this something that just kind of escalates and escalates and escalates and the two parties become very much their two organizing principles are we should talk about race and racism more and we should talk about race and racism less? Is this a passing fancy? Like, where does this all head? I don't think it's a passing fancy at all. I think it's escalated over the last 20 years. We can talk about kind of manifestations of this as part of the culture war two decades ago that have reached their fruition in these cartoonish polls that we have now, at least on the right, with regard to how it talks about things like the 1619 Project and critical race theory and kind of hiding from the reality that there's clearly systemic prejudice that's informed our systems and that continues to have a detrimental impact on communities of color. It's also problematic that with regard to the Democrats, there is, and we saw this in the aftermath of last November, this idea that it's representation of those interests to the point of getting elected, and then there's not much movement on that afterward. I think a lot of people were disappointed in President Biden in the immediate aftermath of the election when he talked about reaching across the aisle, something that was very reminiscent of Barack Obama in 2008. And this idea that, no, the Republicans have not done a good job of being bipartisan with regard to dealing with issues of race. And so maybe the Democrats needed in that moment to push through an agenda that took this issue on in a way that would constitute what many activists and scholars call and and call for the need of a third reconstruction? Are we at a level where we need something along the lines of what we saw in the aftermath of the Civil War Reconstruction, certainly what we saw in the aftermath of the Second Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Act or Voting Rights Act, in our contemporary moment that will strike at the heart of these issues? Nothing made that clearer to those constituents than January 6th, because it was an indication, I think, in a very powerful way that these divisions run deep. The symbols that the insurrectionists took with them to the U.S. Capitol, the Confederate flag and the noose, are symbols of racial terror. They in themselves have a long history. And so when you negate the need for a 1619 project in critical race theory, and then you have your base show up to a so-called rally that ends up turning out to be an assault on American Republican form of government, bearing symbols of white supremacy and racial terror, One could argue that we need that education more desperately now than at any point in our history and forestalling that or cutting off that opportunity for people to learn that, to get exposed to that historical recovery is a big part of the problem. Americans have buried their heads in the sand with regard to our racial history and our racialized systems. The real challenge for us going forward is not to assume in this moment that somehow the contemporary can be divorced from the historical. We really need to make the deeper commitment in this moment to deal with the deep historical injustice that continues to inform our systems at present. Wrapping up here, that's what you say you think the country needs. 
What do you think will happen? I'm not confident that we'll get that because unfortunately we are, you know, our capacity for civil discourse, um, our capacity to engage in dialogue that flows from the premise that we're in the process of kind of perfecting our democracy has gone by the wayside. Statescraft as we knew it seems woefully absent in most public discourse today. And that's tragic. At the same time, when you look at young people today, they seem committed to this idea of making change in their own lifetime. And, you know, once and for all, dealing with these issues in a, in a grand way. And I think that's part of where that polarization comes from, is that it's very easy today to find your camp, to find your tribe, and to kind of hide within your tribe. And we don't have mechanisms that force people to recognize the shared challenges that we have as a nation. In January 6th, and again, I hate to keep coming back to that, but to me, if we talk about the two seminal events of 2020, and people say, well, January 6th was 2021. January 6th is the culmination of 2020. It is the backlash against Black Lives Matter. It's the backlash against the protests that we saw in the streets, the backlash against Confederate flags, and so on and so forth, which have been building for years. And I think the idea in this moment is that we can't continue to operate as a nation without coming to some way of being able to have a dialogue and a discourse that begins with the premise of how do we make America better? And that, again, means taking on and, and, and tackling some of these issues that require us to think beyond sound bites and to think beyond the caricatures that we're getting both on the right and in some cases on the left, on the extreme left, in terms of what the issues are and, and what people need to do. We need statescraft to kind of bring that back. And we don't, we don't seem to have a mechanism, a capacity, or an appetite for that in our contemporary moment. What's to blame for that is a different conversation, but that's where we are. So I'm not hopeful, unfortunately, that we have the capacity to do that at, at this moment. What I am optimistic about is that this moment will produce the sense of urgency that will reignite in people a need for us to try to create pathways for that discourse and that discussion. All right. Well, not necessarily an optimistic note to end on, but that is where we're going to leave things today. So thank you so much, Yuhuru Williams, for joining us today. Thanks, Gil. Yuhuru Williams is a professor of history and founding director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari-Curtis is on audio editing. And I should also say, today we welcome our new summer intern, Emma Riley. Welcome, Emma, to the 538 Politics Podcast team. We are very excited to work with you this summer. We got a lot in store for us. Also, as usual, you can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. Bye.